Welcome to the latest Breakdown Pod. I catch up with the one and only Andrew Mertens out of Australia, talking all things Australian and Wallaby rugby. I catch up with Jim Case, talk about the upcoming weekend of Super Rugby Pacific and the spate of red cards in the game. And then I catch up with one of the world's leading sports lawyers in Aaron Lloyd. I always wondered when would be the right time to bring Andrew Mertens into the conversation. And whether or not I wanted a day off, because the great thing about when you bring Mertz in is that you get to take plenty of breaks because he usually sucks all the oxygen out of the room. Well, his room's on uh, the other side of the Tasman. It's in Australia. And I want to ask you this first and foremost, Mertz. Dan Carter at 7 p.m. I think tonight is going to kick 1,598 kicks in 24 hours. You scored 967 points for the All Blacks. At what point would you give up? Um, well, g'day, Goldie. It's nice nice to have a chat. Um, 967, I think after the seven, I think. And I reckon, I reckon I'd be pretty happy to make it through to the seven, to be honest. I think the last time I took a shot in front of the post was at a um, Grammar Tech lunch in Auckland. And I went out onto the field. Somebody, somebody uh, um, paid for an auction item and ended up, uh, it was a leather rugby ball, a Colin Mead signed rugby ball, and they said they'll throw another few hundred on if Mertens can go and try and kick this over the post out on the field. And I got out there, and I think I missed four in a row from right in front, and I pulled a groin. Uh, next thing, I was joined by one of the other lunch attendees who turned up nude beside me, and I thought, right, this is an ignominious way to finish kicking. So, yeah, DC, good on him. I know he's been uh, been doing a lot of a lot of work. I mean, kicking's been a massive part of his life. Obviously, he's a lot more diligent about it than any other goal kicker, with the exception of perhaps Johnny Wilkinson. So, fifteen hundred and ninety-eight. I told him he should score fewer points. Um, he's got, <laughs> he's got far too many bloody tries for my liking as well. So, you know, five five points a pop that that takes it up there. So he's going to do that over twenty-four hours raise some money, and I think good on him. Yeah, yeah, it is great. It's great to see. It's for great cause. And, and you know, that's no easy easy feat to do 1,598 kicks, even if you are in front of the posts. With, you know, just the repetitive nature. And the fact that he's, he's probably not too far removed. Neither you and I could do that now. He's not too far removed from playing. Look, uh, look you're a superstar on television <laughs> over there now. It's good to see that you haven't changed... You haven't changed your voice, your manner, the way you go about um, uh, you're looking at the game. Uh, it's, it's one of the highlights for me when we get some insight from you. I want some insight now on the Australian game because I was very critical, Mertz, probably about a month ago, and probably critical on the fact that I wasn't seeing the things I want to see out of Australian rugby in terms of depth and behind um, their top players, their top players standing out. I was critical of the fact that clearly Australian rugby's got some challenges in keeping its very best talent inside its own borders to play in this competition. And if we want competitiveness and we want this com- competition as in Super Rugby Pacific to grow, they need to get a little bit more of a footing and holding of their, of their game. So in your sense, what's the feeling you get across the board? They've got five teams, the Fiji and Drew have come in. What's your underlying feeling about where the depth of Australian rugby is right now comparatively to where it is here in New Zealand and of course you may not never get to that but do you get the sense that the five teams in time hopefully sooner rather than later are going to be able to create something that's yes, going I think to be they're on the improve 
I, I really do. Um, I mean, I try hard over here to be to be positive and to be objective. The last thing they want is a, is a Kiwi kind of, um, you know, condescendingly assessing their rugby. And, you know, I mean, I look back to our era. We played through a few years where we didn't have the Bledisloe Cup with the All Blacks. Uh, we're up against a very, very good Wallabies team that, you know, were world, world champions from... Uh, 99, and some extraordinary players. And uh, you even wonder if some of those players were absolute world beaters despite kind of the pathways they've been exposed to. Because I think Australian rugby, when you look at it, the, the, the pathways haven't been uh, good and smooth, uh, I think, for a long time. And so they've, they, they know they've got challenges over here, but I think they, they are addressing a number of those um, challenges slowly and those shortcomings. And you know, I think one of them is just the unity of the sport internally in the sport. It's, you know, we're a bit lucky in New Zealand. We're a smaller population. We don't have the other perhaps strength of, of sporting influences like they have AFL here and, and, and rugby leagues, obviously very, very strong. Football's pretty strong. So we don't quite have that same challenge with rugby. And so everyone's by and large been on the same page in New Zealand for a very long time. It's not perfect, but, you know, the, the, the knowledge, I think, goes up and down the chain pretty easily, whether it's first 15 through club rugby, through provincial rugby, through super rugby teams and up to the All Blacks and back down again. So it hasn't quite been the same here. There are a lot of It's quite a fractured sort of an environment. Schools look after their thing. The clubs look after their thing. The super rugby teams look after their thing. You, you find in Sydney in particular, a lot of people will either go and support their club or they'll go and support the Waratahs, but not both. So there's a bit of a disconnect there. And that doesn't help them. It doesn't help their developmental pathways. On top of that, I think also since the Brumbies were so successful, particularly early 2000s, there's been a belief in Australia that you have to be hyper-organised. You have to divide the field into segments. You have to call six plays in a row. And that becomes very, very predictable, as you know. You know, So it, it restricts your ability as a player to, to play heads up. It restricts your probably desire to look for opportunities and you start going through the motions a little bit. And I think that's been the basis of their rugby for the last 20 years. And I don't think it's been good for them. And the, the really good international quality test players we've seen come through again have developed despite that kind of um, that, that development pathway rather than because of it. So I think they're getting better. Um, their defence over here in Super Rugby, Jeff, is... I think has been better than their attack in the first few weeks of the competition. They've got a really, really tight organised defence across all their teams, and it has been better than their attack. We see New Zealand teams, we see the attack that they want to provide for 80 minutes, and and we we think the rugby is a lot, lot better. It's just a little bit different. The Australian teams, as we saw last year in that Super Rugby Trans-Tasman, they attacked and scored a lot more points against New Zealand teams than they did against themselves. Um, their attack really improved and they showed themselves to be pretty gritty on defence. So it's just a different sort of game. But what I think we've seen in the last two weeks with the Australian teams is their attack has got a lot better. They're they're reading the play a lot more. Um, You know, while they might be calling moves, instead of pulling all their eggs in one basket and going through their move because it's been called for the sake of it, they're actually watching what the defence is doing and holding up the pass a little bit. Reds are particularly good at it with James O'Connor. Um, but they've got players who are now within their framework, you know, looking at the opposition and reacting to that. And, you know, that's that's the key. As Steve Hansen always said, you know, you take your options from the opposition. So you've got to be watching what the defence is doing. And their attack has been better in the last couple of weeks. 
You've done well not to imitate Steve Henson there, because in the past you were quite quickly going into the one I'm telling you, son. Is that so? I mean, let's. See, funny enough, you you look across the Tasman here to New Zealand, and that's what you see. I'm seeing actually our two most talented squads in the Blues and the Crusaders for this season to date, relying very heavily on their defence. Going, you know what? We don't necessarily have to play. We're strong up front. Our scrum's good. Our defence is strong. We can get good field position. Choosing not to play. Hurricanes and Chiefs, they have been on the other side of it where they've been trying to create what you're trying to create. I'm going to, you know, I'm pretty going to be pretty critical of this if we don't start trying to play some more football because I don't think from what we saw last year, the back end of last year, some of those skill sets you're talking about, um, we haven't seen from the All Blacks in terms of under pressure being able to execute under pressure in the big games, in the big moments. And at the moment, I've got a sense our, as whether or not our teams are, are treating some of these local derbies to the fact we're just going to you know, go with what we know we can win with versus the Chiefs are going, well, if we play the way the Crusaders and Blues play, we might not win. But if we hold on to the ball, um, the Hurricanes are very much the same. They go, well, look, we probably can't out-muscle and we can't out-defend those two teams. The Hollanders are a little bit in the middle. They can't do a bit of everything. They can't do a bit of anything at the moment, but they'll be gritty. They'll hang in there and give themselves possibly a chance to steal games. Um, Moana have sort of put everyone on notice. The fact if you haven't got your eyes up, look out. Um, you know, if, if, if you're not ready to, to um, take the physical contact um, and, and you're not uh, ready to expand your game and, and look, go away from that and put us under areas of pressure that you can that, you know, we're not quite ready for to prepare for, you're going to struggle. So it, it, last year we saw it, like you say. The mindset, though, when we went to Australia last year, though, Mertz, was we needed bonus points to make the final, right? That was the expectation. So we almost freed up our own game and freed up the contest, and I think it helped the Australian teams. We certainly got plenty of points. We certainly, um, they were enjoyable games to watch because it was a different mindset. And that's something I'm hoping we're going to see again in this competition is the fact that a little bit more freedom. Um, I really enjoyed the Brumbies and the Reds. You know, they've gone, they're, they're, they're one apiece now after the weekend and they've both won their games at home. So there's a tr- traditional feel about that to me, you know, that the, 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 the premier um, organisations, the ones that have got a really strong history, um, they appear to be the ones that are going in as favourites. And clearly, once again, the ones that have some depth, right? So, you know... Is it, at what picture now, at what stage are you going, what's the next best Australian team? Because clearly those two are going to make it. They're going to get into the playoff picture. They're fine. Which is the other team that you think is going to? Because we're expecting, there may even be two now. Look, just given the way the results have gone here in New Zealand, are, the other two, is it the Force? Is it more the Waratahs? I reckon, um, well, who makes the ground It's up? an interesting one. And, and I like the fact that we're, we're seeing these different styles um, within competitions at the moment. And as you say, Crusaders are going with a pretty um, low-risk strategy. You know, we, we know they can move the ball around. They're almost not, not flat-track bullies, but they, they certainly, when they sense an opportunity, they will get in and they will be ruthless. But the, as you say, you know, they, they want the wins. They're, they're not looking for, for scoring bonus points like they had to in the Trans-Tasman last year. So... You know, that, that was a great example against the Highlanders. Just, I mean, the Highlanders throwing everything into it and, and Crusaders having to defend and rely on their set piece and, you know, then break out when they could. But other teams, as you say, Chiefs and, and Hurricanes, more sort of throwing caution to the wind and just all out, you know, 
blitzkrieg sort of a thing, which is great to watch. And it's good that teams within the competition and within games are having to come in with different strategies. You know, if things aren't going well for your attack and you need to shut down and be a little bit tighter or whatever, then they have to do that. And I've got to play smart. So, you know, you've got to react as a, I guess, as a strategic group, you know, the staff, there's onus on them in every game and the leadership group on the field to, you know, to choose the right style of game for the situation and for what's going to give the win. What we've seen, and, and you mentioned that Reds Brumbies game, and, and the irony there is that while the Australian teams in the last couple of weeks in general have really upped their attack and started unlocking the defence a little bit better, that game was more like a test match on, on Saturday night. Really tough defence. Um, it wasn't dour or anything like that, but it was it was both teams made it hard for the other to advance easily and to get into the 22. So there were limited chances. Really was like the intensity of a test match. You know, we know they both can break out and score some wonderful tries, but they just kept the wraps on really, really well. Um, and then players are starting to, I think, you know, from the international uh, picture, starting to put their hands up, the likes of Geordie Pattaya. You know, and last year, one of the accusations leveled yeah, at Pattaya so was, you know, we know he's been unbelievably, unbelievable. He's, he's so threatening because he's got everything when he gets the ball in hand. Last year, at times, he was almost trying to force too much, look for the miracle offloads and stuff, and, and just ended up a bit loose. And he's tightened his game up a little bit this year, so he's bringing his own abilities, but without doing too much kind of head explosion sort of stuff. So he's certainly a guy that's putting his hand up. Um, across the competition, I think, look, the Waratahs had a, had a dire year last year. The force were tough and gritty and stuck in the game, and they benefited a little bit last year by the fact they could come in under the radar. And I think they surprised a little bit of teams. I don't think they've got yeah. that luxury this year. I think teams know when they're up against the force that the force is going to go right through the 80 minutes and they're going to stay in the fight and try and scrabble some points there. So teams are knuckling down against the force, which makes it tougher. Rebels started off pretty awful at the start of the year. So much um, pre-planned attack yeah. and, and really predictable, really easy for the defence to knock them over. And, and they struggled to get any easy go forward and, and put teams' defence under pressure. But they've had a bit of a, an epiphany, or whether it's just you know a bit of time with the with players being around one another and, and they're playing a bit more heads-up rugby. They're trying to get the offloads and they're starting to run support lines. Rather than wait for the next phase, they're starting to think, right, players, my teammates are willing to give an offload. Even though the, the call's been made and they're supposed to truck it in and set up a ruck, they're starting to give offloads. Rob Leota comes back and he's one of those carriers that you know something's going to happen around him. So they're starting to play a bit more of that heads up, which is, is exciting to see because I've been pretty vocal and, and sort of my criticism of their attack up till now. But I think the Waratahs, with the roster that they've got, they will likely be kind of the, the team that ends up pushing those top two teams, the Reds and the Brumbies. And um, when they have a full team on board, when they've got the likes of Lockie Swinton, um, when Angus Bell's there and, and carrying that ball so well, um, Harrison's been really good at fullback. You know, I didn't think that was going to work, but he's been good at fullback because he brings that number 10 kind of vision to, to the position. Uh, he's been exciting. Um, they've got a good midfield in Fochetti and Peresi who are playing well, threatening the defences. And probably if you look at the Australian teams as a whole, the midfield is, is really their strength where you've got so many players vying for those positions. You know, you've got Simone, even though it's been announced, I think he's signed in France. Simone and Ikita, 
at the Brumbies. You've got Paisami, Hamish Stewart going really well up at the Reds as a combination. You can put Pattaya in that mix really as, as a midfielder. But Parisi and Fichetti at, at the Waratahs, I think, both going really, really well. And it means that, you know, under that Gitto law, you may not have to rely on the likes of Asamu Karevi, much as he was unbelievable last year for the for the Wallabies when he came back from Japan. He's lightened up. He's, you know, a genuine world-class player. If you've only got two spots in the team, I think with, with, under the Gitto law, which they've now got, you don't have to rely on a Karevi. So you've got a bit of luxury there to, you know, even potentially look at a Will Skelton. But in saying that again, the locks is the other position really where you've got a lot of players stepping up. Rod has come back now playing for the force. Darcy Swain's been stepping up, particularly as a defensive line-out guy. You've got some really big units floating around. Nick Frost at the Brumbies, Angus Blythe up at the Reds. You've got a, a, a real uh, bunch of young Tyros coming through in that locking department as well, which is exciting for Australian rugby. Man, you are up on the Wallabies. You are up on Australian rugby. You are positively looking at this group and going, you know what? This could be the next crop, and and so and they haven't had the next crop really. If we think about 2015, they did make the Rugby World Cup final, but that was sort of the end of an era, and wasn't in some ways that group of players that talent. The likes of Ashley they were Cooper reaching and, and got to the uh, point. Ghetto himself, of course, Drew Mitchell yeah. in the backs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they got to that point, right? And it was a matter of when we felt as though they might arrive again. So Dave Rennie has announced his first training squad. And, of course, this window is still for players to play their way in. But that's usually pretty difficult. Um, other than that, other than the reason he was trying to put, you know, maybe a rocket up, some guys are going, you know what, we, I need to see more from you. So given the way and some of the signs they may have shown last year, not against the All Blacks once again, and I suppose... Isn't isn't is that the hard one for us here? Is that we've got that yardstick on the Wallabies? Is if they don't win the Blitters, though, they're no good. You know, they can't challenge for the you know, That's that's where it's been for twenty years. Like it's been so long right now. But is that becoming maybe less relevant for Australian rugby? Is the fact that will happen in time? We saw last year against the Springboks signs in the end of year tour. You know, they did lose a couple of key players. As one guy though when we talk about last season, who seemed to have a profound influence, and it was Quade Cooper. For whatever reason, the mindset he came with, and with he, he was a different personality in the group. Will they look at him, or will Dave Rennie move on to 2023 and go, you know what, I don't know if Quade Cooper's the answer. He did a wonderful job for us in 2021 in terms of helping us get some results. But is he the answer, or... Or would you still expect, if there's room with the ghetto law, the fact to bring one or two guys back, they might just keep him around in, in case things... Well, in case last year, James O'Connor got injured, right? He was injured. So they needed someone with experience. Would you? Um, and do you expect it's a, them to? It's a really tough question. I mean, I, I wasn't expecting much. I was trying to lower people's expectations last year of, of Quade Cooper when he came back. It had been five seasons since he played international rugby. And as we know, the game moves on very, very quickly. So I was pleasantly surprised by how well he acquitted himself. And it wasn't the same Quade Cooper we used to see. That You know, he's he still got precocious talent. He's still got ability to find space and put other players into space. Doesn't probably quite have the same pace that he used to. But he's got a, a composure. There was a confidence and composure that he brought to the group. I thought he did his kind of what we used to 
probably think is, is the roles of a, of a fly half that he wasn't so good at, and this is very ironic that I'm talking about this, but his, but his tackling, you know, um, his tackling was was yep. was solid. Um, his goal kicking and his general kicking was really, really good, and they weren't things that we would have put as his top three strengths when he was at the peak of his powers. So he's a different sort of player. So, you know, well, I guess anything can happen. I mean, he and... Um, and Dave Rennie, with any discussions they're having, will be working out what chance he is of being a, a legitimate force in the World Cup in 2023. If they work out between them and with the strength and conditioning people that he that he is, then, of course, he could be in the mix. I mean, it would be great for Australian rugby generally to be able to move on from that sort of player. I mean, we've done that in New Zealand for a long time. You know, move on and, and the team grows past the, the older players that end up going overseas or doing whatever. Well, hold on, hold on. I'm going to come here. I'm going to talk to you there because there's the fact that is there a danger we're hanging on um, in some ways, in some positions, you know, like, I mean, I mean, I mean, between 2019 and what we experienced last year and, you know, and, and what you're talking about with Quade Cooper there and what we're seeing out of the Northern Hemisphere, where I think we would all admit that France are clearly, clearly have advanced their game above everybody else. South Africa still understand what a big moment is and they can put their big bodies together and their game fits a Rugby World Cup. Ireland have obviously made some big strides um, and you're seeing the way they're playing. This, this, the future of winning a Rugby World Cup, like, is it the way 19 was won? Like, we know exactly England, South Africa were the two teams that muscled their way through to a Rugby World Cup final. Is that the game, and do you have to prepare and select for that? And and what do Australia do? Where you go, we haven't won with that in the past in the big tournament. Do we move on to something different? Or do you sit there and go, experience counts? Because traditionally we've said experience counts, right? Where you go, if all of these teams had were deep, but this France team's not going to be deep in experience um, uh, in terms of, you know, they won't have 100 test players. So... How do you? What would be your mindset if you're if you're the Southern Hemisphere, particularly where we are here right now in Australia and New Zealand? Going, you know what? If I'm looking at these players, yeah, I, guess, what is I, I think these days ultimately it's power. You know, even South African traditional traditional game has has been bulk and has been physical toughness, and they're taking that and trying to accelerate that. Um, France has got that because they're, they're big units and of always been able to play a game of, of movement and, you know, and, and speed. Um, you can get the speed wobbles pretty easily, but I think they're, what they've done is brought their skill level up. You know, we always talk about the, the skillful French players, yes, but across the board it hasn't always been the case because so much of French rugby is that kind of gritty power game strangling the other team. We might see Toulouse try and play some good footy, but, you know, in, in the top 14 probably five out of seven games normally are dictated by penalties and just a, a bit of an arm wrestle. So I think this, across the board, the French have upped their skill level. Uh, the South Africans have upped their dynamism, really, to go alongside their physicality. New Zealand's always sort of sat in the middle, a power game, but also a game of speed. Yeah. Now, I don't know if we can at the moment say, right at the moment, and, and, you know, we may be holding a little bit back for World Cup, but at the moment, are we the best in speed in the world? Are we the best in power? And I think France and Ireland showed that we weren't 
the best in, in speed right at the moment. Our domestic competition, I think, yes. But at an international level, I think we, we are struggling to dominate the game enough to, to bring our skills into play. And we've always been so far ahead of the pack in the last 15 years in terms of the, the skill that we have and the speed of movement of the ball. I don't think we're that far ahead of, of other teams, if at all, now in that. So, you know, we need our next wave of players to be taking it to that next level. We're still relying on the likes of Sam Whitelock. And this is not a criticism of Whitelock at all. But where are the young um, Brody Retallicks coming through? You know, Scott Barrett, I know, has had a disrupted couple of seasons with injury and stuff like that. So hopefully he'll be back to his absolute peak. Tupo Vai, um, I think, is, is, is very exciting without being the kind of dominating player that a, that a Retallick and a Whitelock have been, you know, when they've been at their peak. So, um, you know, the strength and conditioning experts are the ones to answer that. I don't know because obviously they work to a cycle and even within the year, as we know, Jeff, um, you know, working to try and get the players at their peak during the all-black season but not having them look rubbish in super rugby is, is a very delicate balancing act. And all the coaches want their pound of flesh at all, all given times of the season, don't they? So, um, I mean, that's a long way to say I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoy that. I mean, but in I other words, you don't know. Because, <laughs> because I think, but I think that's what we're asking ourselves here right now. I mean, as, as commentators, as analysts, as we're watching our games, our comparisons now are, what we saw out of the Six Nations, where we go, well, clearly last year it put us under pressure. And last year was a difficult challenge, you know, and we always struggled that end of year tour, right? I mean, you get to the point of it, you've almost you've hit a wall, and it was all of the COVID stuff, all of that. But it, it was it was the, in terms of the eye test, it didn't look right. Is the fact that we were the ones that were always under pressure, we were the ones who were under pressure, and then you watch Six Nations and you go, gosh, that had put us under pressure. Gosh, that's some really uh, the Irish were, were coming up with you know, um, multiple ways to attack. The French carrying strongly, but then punching through the middle. And then same thing, their ability to turn the corner. And it wasn't all prescriptive, you know, which is where we feel as though in New Zealand we got to for quite a while in our execution, like you say, combined with our um, ability to do it with speed and get enough momentum to have the defence under pressure is not there right now, you know, And, and... and that's why the question marks are there. Because I haven't got an answer right now, but my only answer is, do we need a change of personnel or is it a change? And if you do change the game plan, can the personnel that you've trusted in the past to get the job done, can they go out and deliver it? I mean, I think, I think you know, both countries, Australia and New Zealand, are in a really interesting position of what is their ability to go to the biggest stage in just over 12, 15 months' time and realistically be in a position where, because we're going to play Ireland or South Africa in a quarterfinal. That's, yeah. that's the reality th- for the All Blacks. I think the that challenge is, for that, that us is, as well is, and one thing we've always been good at, obviously, is getting the most out of our numbers because we're a small population, even though rugby's you know, one of our dominant sports. But we've always been good at having a, well, certainly in the last 15 years, having a really good squad. And there's a fine line you need to walk clearly to between, you know, giving experience and, and to, to the whole squad and, and developing those players. So, you you know, you don't really miss too much of a beat when you have to replace them, uh, to replace players. But at the same time, you want your top team, your very top team, getting enough time together to be abs- absolutely a weapon. 
when we lose to other teams, we're not losing to teams that are playing, you know, eight or nine of their top players and, and you know, the rest of them are sort of in that squad of 30. We're losing to the top teams. We're losing to the French playing their top team and playing well. We're losing to Ireland playing their top team and playing well. South Africa, normally the same. So, you know, teams do know they have to put out a good, a really good performance to beat us. And I think that's still a good thing. So, uh, you know, I guess the, 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 the question over the next 18 months as we go into the World Cup is just continuing that and, and bringing players through, but then also making a determination that, you know, if you've got to play the World Cup final tomorrow, and this is your 23, and I know it depends on what the opposition is and a bit of horses for courses, but if this is really our best 23, is that 23 getting enough time altogether? You know, because it's great having six or seven midfielders who can all play for the All Blacks and slot into tests and equip themselves really well, but... You also need to have your three um, from the squad of 23 that you know these are the guys. And it's Leonard Brown and it's, you know, Havili and it's Rico Ioani. And these are going to be our three, for example, in the in the 23. So, you know, we've, we've got to be able to do that. How you do that, I don't know. I mean, it's... it's... We've only got 18 tests. I mean, yep. reality is that's what it is. That's the number. I, don't, I mean, Australia will be very, very similar. You've got 18 more opportunities to get this team together and prepare it. And I don't know if we're 100% sure on 10 of our players in positions. You know, we've got we've been through so many and they've all shown different qualities. Um, it's, 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 it's almost mind-blowing for us that... But in saying that, I could tell you, and quite easily, and you'd probably be able to do the same, you'd write down the safe option. Quite easily, you could write down the squad and you go, well, this is the safe option because this is where they've been before. But... Clearly, that wasn't quite good enough last year. So if it's not quite good enough, you know, we lose to South Africa, we lose to Ireland, and we lose to France. You're going right, okay. We we need to be on the improve. And so I'm not I'm not convinced to know where where we're going to go. A lot more is going to go and play out over the next, I suppose, eight weeks of this competition. Then the playoffs, and then we'll get into these test matches. We're taking on Ireland, you know. So we'll get a gauge whether or not they bring down their full strength team. I'm not sure. They'll work on and, and look at their squad. Man, I could talk. Mm. I could talk code well, for you. Moment, because we've got an I mean, embarrassment just, of riches. You know, I mean, the, the examples for me: Anton Leonard Brown, who I absolutely love as a player, and you've got to have him in the team. And he's a guy who can play twelve and play thirteen. When have we really, in the last three or four years, seen him play several games in a row in the one position? And so, as a result, you know, he's a little bit all over the show. I'm not criticising his play, but you know, it's hard for him to get a read on hmm. this is my position. Um, and do you play him alongside Rico Ioane, who I love at, at centre, by the way, because, you know, the, the best I think I've seen Rico Ioane play, and he's a fantastic winger as well, obviously, but when he was playing at Auckland alongside George Moala, Moala at 12, Ioane at 13, he was devastating. Outside break, was able to use his speed, you know, so, the, the, or do you have him on the wing? And then Caleb Clark, what do you do? Because I think ultimately Caleb Clark is a guy I'd love to see in the centres as well. When he played under 20s, his main strength was the fact that he was always looking with the ball in two hands to put somebody else into space. And the defence have got to, you know, they've got to consider everyone. And then you leave Caleb Clark with a one-on-one, devastating. Nobody's going to get him. So, you know, having those... Will Jordan. It's a grenade. You just love the grenade. You love the grenade. And with, I mean, we can't, Caleb Clark's not in anyone's conversation in the midfield, but you've decided, like, and to be fair, like, and we see this so often, and that's how embarrassment of riches is the fact that all of a sudden Geordie Barrett played at 12 for the Hurricanes because I think, like you've just said, Will Jordan's in such great form. 
And Geordie Barrett was one of our best last year. You know, he's had a fantastic season and has proved that he can play 15 at the international level. But when you've got someone like Will Jordan, and this is this, as you say, finding the spots for all of these guys, for all of this talent. And unfortunately, you'll have to make some really, really tough calls. And some guys you who have played a lot of test matches or who think they've done enough to get an opportunity but don't quite fit the mould of what they're looking for. See, Rico, for me, is, I believe, our very best left winger. He is one of the most devastating and best finishers we've ever had, like most of our left wingers. And you shift him around, and I'm going, but what do we lose? And and so so I'm a, I'm a Quintupaya fan, but that means Anton Leonard Brand's my centre, you know. And and to your point, we need power, you know. We need explosive power, and we I think our backlines lack that, you know. Since no Julian on the left wing, you know, no no one who can carry. That's what a Caleb Clark could possibly bring, that raw ability to get go forward. Um, you know, we've got we've had guys traditionally been wonderfully hardworking players who are. You know, who won't let you down, George Bridge. You know, won't won't let you down. But have they been able to offer you something that, or a different side of the attack? Um, and that's where I'm I'm fascinated to see where it goes. Look, mate, the good thing about this is I can I know where you are now. I can track you down, and we can have a more relaxed chat and have some yarns about all sorts of other things. But um, I see you getting a little bit more active on social media. Well, I couldn't like, have got less active on social three media, months. but. Like, <laughs> The, the question remains whether a bloke at my age should be doing anything at all on social media, but anyway. It does take us usually two and a half days to post something, though, right? By the time you start constructing a post and then by the time you actually put it up online, yeah. and it's usually two and a half days. My challenge is also trying it's to find a, a, works, a right? sort of a tone or a filter that actually makes me look somewhat respectable. <laughs> so that's a struggle. But that's why you leave it to guys like Justin Marshall with his, you know, Constant beer uh, brewing and stuff like that. Oh. That's good on him. <laughs> has, he not, has, he not, has he not brought you down the beer brewing? No, the, the, I mean, they, they're fairly um, partial yeah. to their beer over the ditch here in Australia, as you know. So, um, you know, w- w- would I presume to go and do my own um, in, in my own home and do it better than, uh, than, than blokes, say, from Four Pines or Brick Lane or those sort of ones? No, no, I will not leave it to the specialists for me. <laughs> Just lastly, mate, we missed you over here. It's the fact we loved you having part of our group, of our team, um, but it's great to catch up. What's your crew like? This crew you're working with right now at Stan, and 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 you know this was a big, obviously, investment for them to come in into the into the game. But yes, you I feel do. as though it's, it's all it's starting great to come fun, together. Actually. And, and look, Fox delivered really good rugby product. I think for 25 years as well. Love being um, having involvement with with that team as well, and they got on very closely with Sky as. Stan Sport is getting on really well with Sky. We miss you guys. It'd be great to get together. I'm not sure who, uh, what personnel is coming over for this super round coming up in Melbourne, but I'm looking forward to a little bit of cross-pollination there. But we're having a lot of fun over here. And obviously the delivery of, of content is evolving. The platform is very exciting to work with. I think it's great that you can go on and pick your game to watch at any time. Uh, wherever you are on your phone or on your computer or on your, your your normal TV screen, and you can watch the full game or you can watch the 20-minute cut-down highlights or you can watch an eight-minute package or you can watch four minutes. Over here, we've got, you know, Japanese top league as well. You can sit down and watch all those games in the top league over, over an hour and a half on a Sunday night if you want to catch up with Aussie and New Zealand players who are up there playing the likes of Karevi, Ryan Crotty, playing alongside Bernard Foley up there. So, uh, it's it's really exciting. Good crew over here. We're loving it, and and loving the fact that the Super Rugby Pacificas, uh, like uh, uh, or Pacific, is a combined competition again. And 
you know, very much looking forward to seeing how these Australians do with their their organised defence and their a kind of nascent but developing attack, whether they can put enough stress on, on the New Zealand teams. And, you know, clearly I want to see the Crusaders do well. I've never been a massive fan of the Chiefs. So I don't mind if they drop one of the Aussies here and there, you know. But, yeah, I'll, be, I'll be just there in the interests of rugby from an objective viewpoint, which is where I've carved myself out a little niche over here. And, uh, yeah, and, and, and can't wait for everyone to come across the ditch. Mate, I couldn't have ended it in a better way. That was well delivered. You've got the party line layout. Mertz, great to catch up. We'll look forward to seeing you, hopefully, across the ditch. Cheers, Goldie. Maybe nice on to this chat. side of the Enjoy test the as well. Cheers, mate. Well, on the breakdown pod, what we try and do is quite often we talk about our previous lives and previous careers and what's happened in the last seven-odd days. There's red cards. Jim Kays, you were a rugby player. Did you ever get sent off in a game of rugby union at any level? This is embarrassing, Jeff. Um, I threw two punches in in all the years that I played rugby, and, and that was almost 30 years. Um, one of them I completely missed, uh, and the referee saw me throw the punch and sent me to the sin bin. Right. So um, not only was it embarrassing in front of my under-21 teammates that I completely missed the guy, uh, but I also got sent to the sin bin for it. And it was at Avondale uh, Racecourse, probably field number 467 because there were so many of them, and it was windswept and cold and miserable as I stood underneath the post. And the only other punch I threw was when I was playing for Fraser Tech and we were playing Hamilton Old Girls, or Old Boys as they correctly call themselves. <laughs> and when I threw the punch, the guy put his head down and I punched him on the top of his cranium and broke a knuckle. Uh, and we had people coming around for dinner that night. My hand was as big as a basketball. I got zero sympathy from my wife. In fact, I got the reverse. I was in trouble for being a dickhead. So... Um, <laughs> That's kind of the extent of me in terms of throwing punches or anything like that. So never got red carded, threw two stupid punches and came out on the wrong side of both of them. And generally, the wife is the best judicial review, right? That pretty much oh. tells you whether you're guilty or not guilty. <laughs> oh, my Lord. I was so much tri- – and, and just before they came around, our friends, I was sort of sitting there nursing my hand and, and I groaned and she just – you know that look that you get? That looked at that just says, "Hey, buddy, you're batting zero at the moment, so just shut up." Jim, you talk about batting a hundred or putting zero, batting zero actually. It's the Highlanders; they haven't won a game in Super Rugby Pacific yet. Big question mark: Can they get their first win this weekend against the Moana Pacifica down in Dunedin? I was just talking to Andrew Mertens, and we were discussing the state of Australian rugby. He is deep. He is well and truly inside of it, Jim. But all sports of confidence, all of a sudden, that they're starting to have what it takes. I was critical a few weeks ago, mate, the fact that I wasn't sure they've got the star power, the quality, the depth to be competitive in this competition. He's of the belief the Reds, the Brumbies, and an up-and-coming Waratahs team are heading in the right direction. And when it's, I suppose, I think it's three weeks away, we've got a super round. And we start the contest with those teams across the Tasman. What sort of confidence are you thinking that they've got the ability to compete? Well, I think it's not till that super round that we're really going to know, is it? You know, they can talk as much as they like, but we've seen them play internally, domestically before, uh, and then come up against the New Zealand teams and and not fare very well. So, um, no one, Mertz or anyone else, and Mertz is is a wonderful linguist. 
but really, he doesn't know until they come up against those New Zealand teams because in the past, the skill level, the pace of the game, the rugby knowledge, all of those sorts of things have been too much uh, for the Australian teams at a super rugby level. Uh, and, and look, I agreed with all of the comments that you made on the breakdown that they didn't have star power, that they didn't have uh, a game or, or, or teams that were encouraging people to, to tune into their, to their game. Um, you could argue to a lesser degree the same here in New Zealand because of you know circumstances that we've talked about on this podcast before. But I would still be thinking that the New Zealand teams will have a dominant record uh, over the Australian teams in this year's Super Rugby competition. Um, you know, it's the different story when they get together as the Wallabies because they only have to pick 23. Um, but certainly I think at a Super Rugby level, there's still a real advantage, a real um, dominance from the New Zealand teams until we're proven otherwise, Goldie. And we might be proven otherwise yeah. this year. Who knows? Yeah, but I was encouraged about the things that he said, you know, and he is quite influential, Mertz. And when he gets going, and he got going, you know, we, we, <laughs> we, we chatted for about 40 minutes and he had 36 minutes of under control. Yes, um, yes. But, but he he was, he was charismatic in and around the fact that, that there seems to be a bit more depth of what they're trying to do and achieve. And we talked about, you know, what is it they're going to have at that? at their disposal as we get closer and closer to a Rugby World Cup. And the the conversation is very much what's happening here in New Zealand. And I see the latest teams are out for this weekend, and we see that it looks as though Geordie Barrett's going to remain in the midfield for the Hurricanes for their game um, on Saturday night against the Crusaders. That's a, that's a massive matchup. You, know, you talk about this weekend for the New Zealand sides, and we are at the just about at the halfway stage, right? So if you're a contender, if you're wanting to control your destiny when it comes to the playoffs, this is the time now you need to start making your moves because when we start playing the Australian sides, there's going to be certainly a different type of pressure in terms of the table, right? Yeah. And look, just on that Geordie Barrett thing, he's going to be marking uh, probably uh, David Harvey. Um, If ever you wanted to stamp your claim to be an All Blacks second five, uh, it's when you come up against the guy that played the majority, nine, got nine starts at second five for the All Blacks last year. So, you know, Geordie Barrett, he's, you, you know better than anyone that he's a wonderful fullback, uh, but he wants to be a second five eight. So that's a huge game for him. I don't think anyone should underestimate the importance of direct clashes uh, for All Black selectors because we don't have trials anymore. So it comes down to those sorts of things. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that game. Uh, you've glossed over uh, the Highlanders versus Moana Pacifica, which is your Highlanders, who, as you say, uh, are motherless at the moment. Um, that's going to be a tough game for them. I, you know, all all stirring of one Jeffrey Wilson aside, I, I would give Moana Pacifica a decent chance. That's a 50-50 going into that game, surely. Oh, stop it. <laughs> stop it. Jim, I think we've got to be very careful. I have, I have the greatest respect for the Moana Pacifica team and what they've yep. learnt, but I'm putting everything into the fact that they've just played three games in a week. Yeah, that's uh, not Moana. helpful. Yeah. Very, very challenging. Um, yep. You know, I understand they've still got some challenges of COVID within their environment. That's not helpful yep. either. This no. is a full-strength Highlanders team, right? Yep. Full-strength. Yep. Now, yep. them at full-strength – has been very competitive against the top sides. 
for the Highlanders, they should be looking at this game knowing and believing they can win. I'm not saying that, that it's a lay down, and you're saying it's 50-50. Bottom line is if you think about the success this uh, Moana side has had, it was against a second-tier blue side. It was against the second-tier Hurricanes team. So yeah. they're now coming up against this, <clears throat> a, a Highlanders team that should be incredibly desperate, understanding that they need this win to give them a, a hope of them probably making the playoffs, but more importantly, to get some confidence in their game. And they are, like I say, at full strength. So my expectations is that they will do exactly what the other teams, when they've been at full strength, is they will get, get the job done. So I haven't glossed over it in no. any way, shape, or form. Um, I thought the bigger news was Geordie Barrett playing at 12. That's why I went straight no, to it that. Is, it, is, it is bigger news. Uh, and we, with that Highlanders one, I mean, I'm looking at Shannon Frizzell. You know, we've talked in the past about uh, blindside flank. He's been playing extremely well. He needs to continue to play extremely well. He really needs to show um, a series of dominant performances, you know, that consistency of performance to show that he is the All Blacks blindside flanker because he's he's got all, all the bits and, and pieces in his game uh, just for a variety of reasons. He, over the last couple of years, hasn't been able to play consistently. So he oh, needs to. He, he no, needs I another. I'll argue already. No, I'll argue that already. He's already done that body of work. He's still, and he's gonna. He just needs to continue doing that body of work. He has been the yeah, full blindside, if you ask me, in the competition yep. so far. Oh, in the competition so far, absolutely, absolutely, he's been the full blindside, and I think it's a. It was a wide open position that is now becoming more and more his. But I just want to see him continue that sort of form, you know. Um, and also, do you think we've well? I don't. I think we both agree we haven't seen the best of Aaron Smith uh, so far this year, and I hope he doesn't fall into that category of established All Black who is good but not great in Super Rugby, and then great for the All Blacks. You know, and there were a, there were a few of them. Richie McCaw was one. Dan Carter, Ma'anonu, Jerome Kano, who were good in Super Rugby but you always knew that they were holding back. And Aaron Smith's never really been one that I've noticed to hold back before. I'm not saying he is now, but I really want to see him firing for the Highlanders because when he plays well, the Highlanders win. Yeah, I think in some ways, though, um, it's a chicken and egg. Uh, he just needs to get a little bit more um, of an impact with the guys in front of him uh, so he can instinctively have a bigger impact on the game himself. The one thing you mm. would never say about Aaron Smith is he's cruising. Um, he doesn't cruise. No. Uh, he's in behind the scenes doing every, everything he possibly can. Um, there's no doubt the effort's been there. I think he's been symptomatic of something Tony Brown's talked about is that they're actually in some ways trying a little bit too hard and not necessarily letting the game come to them in terms of reading it and, and trying to play at a speed and uh, almost the fact we've got to have that, we've got to get it now. We've got to get the points yeah. now. We've got to score now versus actually building through a game of accumulating and getting confidence and getting continuity and getting some real positive things happening. But I think him and Mitch Hunt are very much in the same uh, mindset of the fact that they've been pushing really hard. And, and you know, I think uh, the biggest challenge for Tony Brown and his coaching staff is, and I'm, I'm going to ask this to, of him before the game tomorrow night, is how do you release the shackles without releasing the focus? You know, that's yeah. always the don't get loose, but by the same token, don't get tight. And then, and that is that is a very, very difficult uh, place to and, be. I'll say this about Aaron Smith, though. I need to see him run. 
I yes. need to see him be a threat on the inside channel. I need to see him do things just slightly different than he's doing at the moment. I feel as though he's relying heavily on his passing game, pretty much entirely on his passing game. Just be that threat. Just carry a little bit more on the inside channel. Just mm. deliver a little bit more doubt. So I think that's what I'd like to see out of him um, sort of going forward into the into this weekend. I haven't glossed over. I mean, you talk about the Hurricanes and Crusaders. I think there's a chance that, you know, and they've made some um, they've made some changes and, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, where where this um, Hurricanes team is at up against the uh, this is a really strong Crusaders lineup lineup. But um, I want to see the Crusaders play some more footy, Jim. Actually keep the ball in their hands and play some rugby. The Crusaders? Yeah, I want to see them play. Not just defend. Yeah. No, that Not would be nice because boy they've got They've got some wonderful attacking threats, haven't they? And, uh, you know, when they start to release the likes of Havili, uh, you will Jordans and, and, and you know, Richie Moanga running on running onto the ball and, and that sort of thing. They're a, they're a wonderfully exciting side to watch. That What you said about the Highlanders is so true across all sport, isn't it? That when you're not playing as well as you know you can, you try too hard, and then the harder you try, the worse you end up playing. So you try even harder. You know, you see it in all sorts of sports and you think you, you've just got to try to get back to that relax, let the game flow, as you said, let the game build, let the small things become things that become big, big things, good, big things. Um, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? The mind is an incredible thing uh, when it comes to how it defeats us sometimes in sport. Without a doubt, um, without a doubt. You know, and, and, and everyone knows and if you've been in a highly competitive environment in the end, it's 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 how you mentally deal with the different challenges that are presented along the way. And yeah, sometimes it's complacency that you're facing. Sometimes it's the ultimate challenge the Highlanders have got right now where the success of defeats can be mm. um, demoralizing to the fact they can dent your confidence and your belief in in, in not just your uh, your team's ability, but your own individual ability. And so you know, and that's oh, where yeah. I'm at the moment. This is this is where I think, to me, when I talk about a mindset, you see, that's a concern I have at the moment with both of our top teams, the Blues and the Crusaders. The Chiefs are on a different playing field. I'll, I'll get to them in a moment. But the Chief, the Crusaders and Blues, for me, are the clearly the most talented squads, Jim, with the yes. probably the most depth, both of these squads. And you yep. start going to yourself, well, why in the world then are they relying so heavily on their defence to win games, to actually... Mm suffocate the opposition into making mistakes and playing no rugby in their own half. And you mentioned, and he wasn't, and here's the thing, he was the third player you mentioned for the Crusaders. He's the two-time Super Rugby Player of the Year in Richie Maunga. But yeah. he was the third player because he has been the most influential player for the last two seasons, in my view, about performance. And you sit there and go, he, he, I would have thought he's the first guy we talk about. Was it, where is he? You know, who's the guy who's breaking the line? But I think it's a mindset of the team that is going. You know what? We are we're going to play this. We've obviously got a very good forward pack. Um, We are good at scrum time. We're good at line out time. We're excellent defensively. We can win games doing that. One, relying on the opposition making mistakes. Two, we earn penalties to get field position, and then we go to go to our strengths up front. I just don't see that. Benefiting the Crusaders, I think it's it's not benefiting New Zealand rugby. And it's the Crusaders team that played in the early two thousands. You know where they 
they rucked and rucked and rucked until they got a penalty and then Mertz kicked it over and, and, and that was sort of their game plan. Um, you're right, it's not good for the Crusaders. It's not good for New Zealand rugby. We need the likes of uh, Richie Moanga playing well, playing with confidence, you know, running onto the ball and really challenging um, Bowden Barrett when he's back for that All Blacks number 10 spot. You know, you want it to be the most fiercely contested position from two guys who are in wonderful form. Uh, and we're certainly not seeing that at the moment. The, the Blues, you're right about them as well. We'll get we'll get on to them and to Caleb Clark soon, but losing Caleb Clark's not good for them because he was one of their real strike weapons. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do there. Still no Roger Tuivasa-Shek. Do you think, Jeff? Or how much of an impact do you think Rogers not playing is going to ultimately have on the confidence of the All Black selectors to pick him? Because I think we both know that if he'd played a little bit of NPC last year, they were going to take him on the end of year tour. So do you think they'll still take a punt with him if he doesn't play much rugby? Or will they send him off and tell him to play for Auckland or something like that? Um, this is a really challenging uh, situation for them to be in. You know, you'd be surprised if he hasn't got a decent body of work um, and, a, and a consistently good body of work. You wouldn't risk him against Ireland. I mean, this is a team that's, that's you know, we're possibly going to uh, face in the Rugby World Cup next year. And they go, well, that's a long time away. But the last thing you would want him to do is go into that underprepared and yes. uh, not ready for that next challenge and next step. Is it doing yeah. him any harm? Um, it's not doing him any harm, but it, it's certainly limiting when when it's going to be the right time, if it's going to be the right time, we shouldn't take this for granted. We shouldn't take for granted that he's, we assume that he's going to have the ability to go to the next level, but not at the expense of guys who are, have, have been out there already in this competition, performing well, who did a good job last year. You talked about David Havili. I talk about Quinn Tupaya. I talk mm. about um, Anton Leonard-Brown and the form that, that he is showing. I look at those guys and I'm going, you know, you've got Jack Goodhue, um, uh back, coming back. back I'm going to tell you, you've got yep. Thomas Umanga Jensen. If you can get a body of work together, um, a body of work together and get back out there. So, I, once again, you, you don't get handed an all black jersey. No. You, you, you know, some people have, but I don't think at this point in time, with as JK likes to sing, as 18 test matches to go, um, you, don't, you won't get handed it. You, you, you can't be in a position to just get handed. Yeah. So does it hurt him? I think he's just, he's going to be limited on, you know, the body of work he could have. He, he's not far away though, but it's the matter of bottom line. He still has to go out and perform and you're starting to get to the end of a business, the end of a competition. And saying that, the best place to blood him might be against the Australian sides. Um, mm. A different type of pressure comes on to him in terms of um, the physicality. They're not, they're not going to have the same physicality of what's happening right now. Look, they have named their side the Blues. Um, Ratu Matu Vaki, uh, Vuki uh, Nikins is on the on the right wing and Tali has been on the left wing. I'll tell you what, Mark Tali has been really, really good. Kero is he at has. the back. He yeah. the second five. Look, this is, a sort of, this is a heck of a team. Hodgman, Eklund, Toanga Fassi, Romano, Goodhue, Robinson, Popoli, Situtu, Christy at halfback. Look, they're, they're going in stack, but, but I come on the other side of the the Chiefs are the team for me that has the greatest potential right now. They have the team that continues to build in and around the squad that they've got. They've got viable options uh, at so many different positions with so many different people. Um, they saw, they showed on the weekend that, yes, they're going to miss Brody Retallick, but they're going to be able to. Josh Lord played really well when he came off the it bench. Didn't he? So he was good. 
good, didn't he? He was yeah. good. Like, I mean, he just looked as though he'd put on a little bit of size. So really excited about where um, where they're sitting at right now and the fact they want to play. They really do want to play. And we're seeing a different Josh Uani and a different Bryn Gatlin. Josh Uani's got a bit of a niggle. Not sure if he'll be out there. Mm. Um, but, I, I mean, I, I really like the Chiefs in this matchup. I really, really do. I think that they've got um, a, a real confidence on both sides of the ball. Yeah, I can't disagree with that. Uh, and it's good to see because, um, you know, we need three, four, or if not five, but we need at least three of our Super Rugby teams to be really strong. So the Chiefs, you know, we, we need teams to get up and to match the likes of the Crusaders who have dominated this competition for so long uh, and and bring through other players. And, you know, you mentioned Josh Ioane, and it's easy to forget that he did play a test match for the All Blacks. He does have, mm. as we saw in that game last week, some wonderful skills. Uh, and there needs to be some depth going into a World Cup uh, behind Barrett and, and Richie Moanga because, you know, you only have to go back a couple of World Cups to the one here in New Zealand where we used, you know, four or five different first fives. So really important, I think, that they that they do establish some depth there. Uh, Two more things one... I want to talk about, Jim. Two yep. more things. On that, on that um, what you were just talking about then, Damien McKenzie, uncommittal. Uncommitted. To... Yes, of of his future um you know after a season in japan are we surprised to hear that well i think you and jk talked about it on the breakdown about a month or so back that he might not uh be an automatic choice to come back and you know he's a he what would he be mid to late 20s latest 20s you know does he come back and and try for a you know he'd get back into the all blacks we would presume and, and go to a world cup next year or does he enjoy life living it overseas and, and maybe playing more in Japan or going somewhere in, in Europe? Um, you know, it's a real lifestyle decision versus chasing that burning desire to be an All Black again. And only he would know whether he still has that. From an All Black's perspective, he's a very valuable person because he can play uh, with a fair bit of ability, both first five and, and fullback. And when you have a squad situation, that's a, a really important person to have on the in your squad, if not on the bench. So if he's not there, then yeah, pressure is going to go on. Well, not not pressure, but opportunities will be presented to the likes of your Joshuanis to say, well, here I am. I've had a crack before, and I'm worth you know you having a look at again to build some of that depth at that first five because you need you need three or four people in every position. I think when you go into a World Cup, not all of them obviously are going to be with you in France, but you need. Three, you know, at least three, if not four, people in every position that you can go. Yep, well, we've got some good backups there. So, so interesting. Damien McKenzie, he turns twenty-seven on the twentieth of April in a couple of weeks. Twenty-seven. Right. Mm. So it's not like he's coming to the end of his rugby career. Um, no. The interesting part for me is right now, uh, he would be your third choice fullback if Will Jordan and and Geordie Barrett are, you know, Correct. the two guys. You know, you probably have to say that. And, and once again, it comes down to the windows of opportunity for this all-black coaching group to play their players who are going to be, you know, the likely starters or the significant starters over the next 18 months. I, I, I'm, You know, I, I think this is an interesting one. Whether or not um, it's a bit like the TJ Piranara thing where the conversation needed to get out in the public um, domain you know, TJ was talking about going to rugby league last year. He still ended up mm. coming home because he ended up getting, 
you know, um, a, a a deal with New Zealand rugby that suited him and his family, right? So, yeah. I mean, I'm wondering whether or not it's similar. Damien McKenzie is looking at and going, what is the, in the best interest for him and his family? And uh, is it coming back here to New Zealand or is it remaining up in in, um, in Japan? Uh, and talking about uh, other significant things, obviously, in the news, breaks today, Caleb Clark has received a three-game suspension. Uh, we're going to catch up after this. I'm going to catch up with Aaron Lloyd, who was his lawyer in um, the judicial um, process over the last 24 hours. I'm interested to get his thoughts on, on what's gone on. But um, this has been polarizing, Jim. It really has. It has. You talk, yep. to, you talk to people on both sides, you know, and, and some people, I talked to Mertz, uh, you know, was Mertz went on social media saying, you know, just another poor decision from the referees. Um, but in saying that, he understands, uh, you know, maybe why there, that this has happened. But, you know, I look at this, uh, this is, this is the, is this the precedent that's been set? Is this the, you know what, from now on, um, this is, if you make this decision to do this in game, this will be the consequence. Well, a precedent's an interesting word because I was told by Ben O'Keefe that uh, in 2018, CJ Standers um, charged down whatever you want to call it on Pat Lambie when South Africa played Ireland became the framework or the or the benchmark, I guess, um, for all decisions to be made from. He got one week. He was suspended for one week, CJ Stander. He jumped while um, Pat Lambie was kicking the ball. It's on YouTube if our listeners want to have a, have a look at it. And he sort of turns and he whacks him in the head with his hip. He knocks him out. And eventually that's, uh, that concussion was the end of Pat Lambie's career. Um, so he got one week. So maybe they've toughened up on it by giving Caleb Clark Three weeks, um, but there's a couple of things. There's a couple of points here, I reckon, Goldie. One is that we need to change the the, the description of this act because he was charged with foul play, and I don't think I think everyone would agree it wasn't foul play. It was reckless, dangerous, whatever word you want to use. Foul play for red cards was when you had eye gouging, head butting, uh, testicle grabbing. Those sorts of things were the red card offences when foul play was around. So I think that probably needs to change. But do we see from all of these cards a change in behaviour? And I think the answer would have to be no. There's been no change in, in behaviour. Uh, we, we've had seven cards already this year in Super Rugby. Uh, stats from the Six Nations. Uh, last year, four red cards, 2020 five red cards. In the previous 19 years of Six Nations, there were six red cards. So they're giving out more, and it doesn't seem to be having any impact on whether or not people are changing their behaviour. I know you've talked about NBA and and, and uh, the fines that they have in NBA. Maybe that needs to happen. Do you? I think it's slightly ridiculous that a player can be suspended and still get full pay while they're suspended. I mean, do some of these things need to come into it so that we see a change in behaviour? I, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, and this the, the, the word that is always going to cloud this conversation is intent. You know, yes. and all of these players will say there was no intent yep. um, for all of the ones that have happened. You know, um, all of them have been reckless to your point where it's clearly not someone punching someone or kicking someone no. or eye gouging or all of the, the lowest forms of foul play in the game of rugby union. But I think in the end, these are still a version of foul play. 
they are actions which are reckless, which are endangering the careers and lives of other players. Now, it's, it's a collision sport. It's a gladiatorial sport. I just look at this and go, if you're going to set the boundaries around um, you know, how players are going to behave, you have to find out what the deterrent's going to be, right? You have to find out what it is that's going to change the behaviours. And if you, you know, you talk about this, Jim, as well, a lot of the fact that in the end, technique is the responsibility of coaching. Yeah. Am I not right? It's the, the Absolutely technique. right. You know, from the moment, so, <clears throat> so the moment we start coaching our kids, the focus is on technique. How do we teach them how to tackle? How do we teach them how to scrum? All those sorts of things as they go through their, their playing existence, they go through a variety of levels and a variety of coaching. And what you're trying to do is teach them the basics, first and foremost, so it's safe. And two, you can operate and play under the laws of the game. So, And you get a good, a good game. So I think for me, that's what's important is understanding, you know, that, that the example is being set at the highest level. This is the example. This is the way and the attitude you would like to see the games played. I still believe there are there always be areas where there'll be new uh, instances you have to deal with. There'll be the odd thing that happens, which hasn't happened before or hasn't been, I suppose, recently dealt with. And I think this is one of those where, you know, um, when that happened to Pat Lambie at that point, there probably wasn't the same emphasis on the concussions and collisions in the game. Whereas now we know no. it's vitally clear we protect the mm. players. This is just the latest instance. We're now seeing all of these instances of collisions, which we know are harmful and dangerous. And because of that, I think you're going to see, um, I suppose, maybe the punishment's a little bit harsher. But to be to be fair, though, to have Caleb Clarks in this view, I think, reduced from six to three, the same as other players, if from my perspective, you know... Uh, I find that a little bit tough to swallow right now because of his the very much the accidental nature of what his collision was. Three weeks is the popular suspension mm. for an on-field red card. 17 red cards have resulted in a three-week suspension. Only one has been more than that, uh, and that was the four weeks um, from the Mani Nungusa, who that was from the weekend as well, wasn't it? Uh, and no, and that was a, that was a very much a reckless sort of yeah. um, clothesline, and, yeah. and that yeah. to me was probably it's probably fear. Yep. So the three weeks that Caleb Clark uh, got is seems to be in, in line with just about every other red card that's been dismissed uh, that has been given out. There's been two of them have been dismissed afterwards, and and two resulted, two others resulted in nothing. So you know, if you look at if you if you get a red card in a game, the history will tell you that you're likely to get three weeks, that you're almost certain to get a three-week suspension. So here's an example for you. I mean, here's the, in, you know, like I was in the same scenario in 1999 in a Super Rugby final and uh, Afata Sawalo chipped over my head, right? Yeah. So I jumped straight up and down. And because I jumped straight up and down, um, Basically, it meant that he was able to change his direction and run around me after he kicked it. Yep. So, so because I'd gone straight up and down, I didn't move into his space. He knew when he'd kicked it. 
that he had to go around me he ended up that was the try that undid us you know mm. um but that you know that I look at that and go, well, that was the way that I was in a position that I felt as though I could it was the best way for me to block it. Um, and that's a basketball yeah. thing, isn't it? That's really yeah. I mean, you play a lot of basketball, and that's a real basketball thing that you can jump, but you must occupy the same space that you did and, beforehand. Yeah, and I think for me, I, I think it is it is a possible answer to this conundrum that we are having around these collisions. You can't jump mm. across the line. You know, you're not, you, you don't, you're not supposed to close that gap you get penalized for that same thing if you're you know contesting mm. a kick if you jump in and collide with someone you have to protect the guy who's receiving first right whereas if you both get to the same space and then go up and down you don't see that type of collision so no. it's about controlling that space and so i think maybe there's a possibility there that's a technical thing that um that, that they have to look at i'm fascinated though jim to see what super rugby can't afford just lastly before we go is they can't afford to have another week like we've just had. Oh no! There were what four red cards? Five. Uh, I five think red cards. Five. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, because there was the one in the Tuesday game. Uh, no, you're 100 percent correct. It's a, it was a it was a bad look for the sport. Um, it's not what we want from Super Rugby. We want all the talk to be about uh, the tries and the thrilling finishes and that sort of stuff. It's been far too much. Uh, talk about red cards and 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 that sort of stuff. So, um, you also made a really good point, and I think this is what needs to be drilled into players. That yes, there is talk about intent, but we actually need to stop talking about intent because it's kind of irrelevant. It, it's the the other words that you used, which were was it reckless? Yes, it was. You know, was it dangerous? Yes, it was. Um, whatever other adjective you want to come up with. So forget about intent. Intent should should not even factor into it. It should be, did he re, did he behave in a reckless manner? Yes, he did. Did he behave in a dangerous manner? Yes, he did. Whether he meant to or not, that that should not factor into a defence. It should just be those other words that you used, which is you know, as I say, reckless or or dangerous and that sort of stuff. Because that ultimately it's the it's it's your action, not your not the intent behind your action that should matter. You know. If I throw my arm out and coat hanger you, it, it shouldn't matter that it was a, uh, an instinctive reaction. That's irrelevant. I've still mm. coat hangered you, and it's the it's the action that I did rather than the fact that it was reflexive or or without intent or malice. I still coat hangered you. He still hit that dude in the head with his knee, and the Moana, and and the Moana Pacifica player had to leave the field. That's what we should focus on. And what's Jim, interesting, Jim, is that no one's. No one's talked about the poor guy that got knocked out and had to leave the field. No one talks about yeah. him. Well, well, no one's talked about Patrick Lambie because he hasn't played the game since. And those are things that yeah. we just have to avoid. Uh, you know, um, if we possibly can, and this is a situation that we mm. can. I've enjoyed the last couple of weeks. Jim, we'll have to wait. Welcome Sir John Kerwin back this week. Next we, will. Week, no. we will. We'll welcome back with open arms and see what wonderful words of wisdom he had for us. Yeah, or I hope you brought us maybe presents. the Blues have lost we can get into him. Yeah, he's been in Australia, so I'm expecting presents. <laughs> all right, mate. Let's uh, do it all again next week. Sounds good. Well, it's fair to say the last seven days for Super Rugby has been sort of a challenge. The fact you've had five red cards, which means all of a sudden there is a lot of judicial reviews about what's happened during the week. And for every red card, it ends up it goes straight to the judiciary. So why not get one in one of the world's leading sports lawyers in relation to one integrity, but importantly, disciplinary proceedings 
in sport. And Aaron Lloyd, he is the Judicial Officer for New Zealand Netball and New Zealand Rugby League. So he's on one side, but on the other side, he then goes and represents players, teams and officials in rugby union. So there's no better person to talk to, <laughs> given what has just happened. But also, he represented Caleb Clark. And that was probably one of the most polarising, you'd have to say, moments in Super Rugby, Aaron, and, and probably not an easy situation for you as well, given the fact that this isn't a scenario maybe we've seen too often? Yeah, I mean, most of the head contacts we've been dealing with um, over the last few years in particular, right, have all been either tackle head contacts or ruck or more head contacts. So this one was one where, you know, Caleb, everyone's seen it, but Caleb jumps to try and charge down a ball that's been kicked by an attacking player, so not a stationary player, but a running player. And after the kick and the charge, charge, charge down jump, they collide. And Caleb hits him you know, very firmly with his thigh and the head. Um, and, he's, and he's knocked out and concussed um, um, Tomasi. So, yeah, it, it is unusual. I think um, I think the Blues head, 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 head coach, Leon McDonald, came out and said, oh, I've never seen this before. You know, we've had a few, but there aren't many. And, 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 they are, and they're all different. So, so when you're going into something like this and talking to Caleb, and clearly he's very remorseful. Anyone who knows Caleb Clark, it's not it's not the way that he plays the game, um, you know, and and clearly clearly disappointed. So, so when you get something that's unique like this, does the process in some ways change in terms of the way that you are arguing the punishment that's that, that that's coming? Um, y- yes and no. So. Um, I mean, we have have a very well-established process, particularly in the Sanzar competitions now, where what happens is if you get a red card, you automatically go to the judiciary, as you were saying, or if you get cited after the game, so you don't get a red card, but afterwards the citing commissioner looks at it and says, actually, you should have got a red card, we're going to send you to the judiciary. All of those cases go together to, in the first instance, a committee called the Foul Play Review Committee, the FPRC. And they meet usually on a Monday night after the weekend, and everyone who is in, in the judicial process that week sends in a written submission to the FPRC to suggest to them how they should deal with it. And the FPRC will come back and say, um, yes, we'll give you what you're asking for, or no, we think it's different and here's what it is. And the player then has a choice of either accepting what the FPRC says, and that becomes the end of it, or um, going no and going to a hearing. So you know, this week, for example, um, uh, Shiloh, uh, Shiloh Klein from the Crusaders got a red card in the game against the Highlanders, um, and Caleb got one on the weekend in, a, in the game against Moana Pacifica. Both of those matters go to the Foul Play Review Committee. Foul Play Review Committee give their opinion on them, and the players can accept them or go on. In Shiloh's case, he and the Crusaders accepted um, what the Foul Play Review Committee said, which was um, well, he accepted that the red card was was justified. Um, he said the red card was right. Um, I accept I did wrong. Uh, same with Nepo Lalalas for the Blues last week. Um, Foul Play Review Committee said yes. They said, right, we think the appropriate sanction is this. In both Nepo's case and in Shiloh's case, it was three weeks suspension uh, with permission to go to the coaching intervention. Um, and in Shiloh's case, Shiloh and, and, and the Crusaders said, we accept that. So it got dealt with at that first triage stage, really, Jeff. Then... Um, but then if you don't like what, what is offered to you at the triage stage, you get to go to a, 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 a formal hearing. And, and in the old days, we used to just go straight to those hearings. So the, the FPRC becomes a triage to try and deal with stuff quickly. If, if it doesn't work, then you go to the hearing and then you have the hearing. And that's what we did with Caleb 
last night. So on Monday night, the Foul Play Review Committee, we engaged with them. We didn't. We thought um, that, that what they were offering wasn't the right outcome for us. So we made the decision to go to a hearing and we had a proper inquiry at the hearing last night. And the hearing is done live. It's done over Zoom, so very similar to this. Yep. You've got boxes with all the committee members and, and, and you. You put in written material. You're able to submit videos if you want to for consideration. And the hearing is a much more considered exercise. You know, to give you an indication, Caleb's didn't have the clock on, but it probably went for a couple of hours last night, um, uh, probably two and a half by the time we were done. So it's a much more considered um, process where the player gives a gives a verbal statement, explains what happened, answers questions from the committee. In the case of Caleb's hearing last night, we had Dan Hellingohu, the assistant coach from the Blues, who also gave uh, evidence to the committee around um, what Caleb was trained is trained to do in those circumstances, and and importantly, in Caleb's one, what the attacking player was probably going to do, or what they anticipated that he would do too. The committee asks questions of Dan, and then I get the opportunity to give some submissions as to how I think the committee should deal with it. So you've served on the other side of it. How much of this process falls under not just the national body, but the global body or the competition itself in regards to sanctions? How much does the judicial uh, committee, does they control or is it quite clear cut? Because quite often our referees are continually talking about process, process, process. Is it similar for you, given the fact you've sat on the other side of it, when you lay things out, does the should the picture be clear? And has this case in particular with Caleb, has that all of a sudden set a precedent for this type of collision? Um, I'll answer that first. I think it has set a precedent for this kind of collision. Right. I think what the outcome of Caleb's case last night is that players need to understand um, that even in circumstances where they are going for a legitimate charge down, they need to be prepared to, to it, it, on, the, on, the, on the wrong side of a suspension if they end up colliding and injuring a player. And it's an extension of the philosophy, if you like, that we've seen rightly imposed in rugby over the last few years in particular, saying to players that they've got a responsibility that to make sure that their actions don't hurt other players. Right? Yeah. And there'll be a line as to when that's purely accidental and just a rugby matter and when it's something else. But to go answer your question around structure, in rugby we've got a really top-down, a really clear authorised judicial structure from the top down, so from world rugby down. So world rugby issue the laws of the game, which is the playing rules, if you like. But what they also issue is um, they have a, uh, a set of regulations that govern how the game uh, is governed. So they have a regulation that sets out field size. They have a regulation that sets out how medical procedures do. They have a regulation that, that deals with um, restrictions on your gambling. They have a regulation that deals with this and deals with that and all sorts of things. Regulation 17, which sort of gives you an indication of how many regs yep. there are. Yep. Regulation 17 is the judicial regulation, and it runs for a series of, I don't know, 30 pages probably. Wow. And explains how judicial hearings, how the judicial system will operate. And then what happens is that's the World Rugby Regulation. So that regulation governs all World Rugby test matches and competitions. So when we're at the World Cup doing this, we use Regulation 17. At domestic level or regional level, so New Zealand Rugby for the MPC or Sanzar for the for Super Rugby and for the Rugby Championship, they then implement their own version of the disciplinary regulation that pretty much mirrors Regulation 17. Um, 
uh, and that's the regulation that we use as our guide. So that's the regulation that says when you get a red card, you go straight to the judiciary, that the judiciary will either be a single judicial officer or three, um, a three-member panel, that if it's a three-member panel, the chair will be a lawyer and the other two will be ex-players, coaches or referees, and, and here's the process and here's how you do it. And the regulation also gets down to when you get a when you if you are found guilty or you accept that you are guilty of a of a of a of a breach in front of the judiciary, then there's a table of sanctions that says here's how the sanction gets calculated. And the table of sanctions says essentially for every offence in rugby, there's a low, medium, and high grade offence or high entry point for sanction. Um, uh, in the case of head clashes, um, you have to start at mid range um, unless. There's been a rule change this year that says at least it's wholly disproportionate. But that's yet to be um, succeeded and will be really hard, I think. So head clash. So Caleb's last night, let me sort of use that as the example. Law 9.11 says that, that a player must not do anything that's reckless or dangerous. Right. So it's a general reckless, dangerous um, provision. And that's what Caleb was alleged to have breached when he got issued his red card. Now... Caleb accepted that actually what he did was was careless and and therefore resulted in danger to the other player. But but what he said, what we said in the in the in the hearing last night was, but we don't believe that it met the red card threshold, that it should have been something less, a yellow card or a penalty, say yellow card. And that was really the point that we debated for two two hours on the judiciary last night, unsuccessfully in the end. Because that changes significantly, right? The process from there, if it doesn't meet that threshold, I mean, and we yeah, saw that doesn't... in Australia. Um, um, with Taniella Tupo, oh, right? Where, where yeah, he or Tom, or Tom Yeah. So all yep. of a sudden... So it, yeah, so a red card gets overturned, or if it's not a red card, it's a signing, it gets dismissed if it shouldn't have met... If it, if it doesn't meet the red card test. If it doesn't meet the red card test, then the player is free to continue to play. If it meets the red card test, then the judiciary have to decide what suspension he gets. And in the case of Caleb's last night, they said it's mid-range, so starts at six weeks, because he's got a perfect disciplinary record. I mean, he's 23 years of age. He's played about 80 professional and international games of rugby since he left high school. He's never had any disciplinary issues before. He's clearly a, a remorseful and, and considered young man. He'd, he'd been in touch with Tomasi. He'd spoken, you know, engaged with him. Uh, and he accepted that, what he, that he'd done a breach. He was just challenging the, the red card. So on that basis, the judiciary gives them a discount. And they gave them a 50, 50% discount, which is the maximum available for three weeks. So, Aaron, now if I, uh, there'll be a lot of people like I'm questioning the fact all of a sudden you've got two actions here in New Zealand, Nepola Lala and Shiloh Kleiner, who's who appear to have been significantly different types of collisions, have ended up at the same place of Caleb Clark, which appears with a a different level of either recklessness or intent. Uh, and and do, do you think, you know, and I'm sure you guys were, were sitting there thinking to themselves, like, we are going, how, how do we end up in this place where, you know, Caleb now, but is this more importantly, Caleb's going to miss three weeks, but this is, is this more importantly about setting that precedent? And, and is this, through all your experience and, and on both sides, is this a bit of a, we now maybe need to, to, to create a deterrent for people in terms of look, or just the duty of care? Is it just the duty of care is changing that fast in in the sports realm per se that you know as these things do get revisited and there are new circumstances going, you know what the framework is a little bit different than it was ten years ago, and this is now the level where 
prepared to accept? Is that probably fair? Yeah, look, I think that's right. You know, I think if you look at those three incidents, so Nepo Laulala's entry into the ruck, he was off his feet, his arm was tucked, he hit with his shoulder. What well, wasn't deliberate, he wasn't trying to do it. He was he was trying to position himself in such a way that he caught the guy under the chest and, and, and lifted him, but he just did a whole lot of things wrong. Right, and, and Nepo and the Blues accepted that, and you've seen the media on that. So he ends up at three weeks. But in his case, actually, the committee um, granted him dispensation to a, a apply for what's called a, the coaching intervention program. Um, so at the moment, World Rugby are running a trial. They started it in July. It runs to July this year as a trial, where if you are, found, if you, uh, are suspended as a result of foul play and the committee believes, and you ask for and the committee uh, grants you permission, you can ask to go into this coaching intervention program. It's quite thorough. What happens is your coach and you have to come up with a plan that, that, that identifies what your technical deficiencies were that led to the incident happening, um, how you're going to train those out. You video those as you train them that week, and the video and the form get sent up to World Rugby. World Rugby then appoint an independent coach reviewer from another union, another international union. So in the case of Nepo Laulala's last week, there was an Australian uh, chap who uh, did that, and um, and they do a thorough review, and then ultimately they say, yes, we accept that that is genuine, and it was a genuine attempt to remedy the defect, in which case then you've completed the program and you can replace the last week of your sanction with the coaching intervention. So Nipo Laulala uh, has been through that, and he's, had that, he's now had that approved. So his three-week suspension will now reduce by two weeks to one week to two. Same with Shiloh Klein's. So Shiloh Klein's was a similar to Nepo's, but a little bit different. He was upright. It was a tackle situation, not a ruck situation. He was upright, turned the shoulder, hit, hit. Again, clearly technique deficiencies. Um, he's been given, granted, he got the same sanction. Um, and three weeks does seem to be a bit of a marker for most first-time offenders with head collisions. It's just the way the sanctions all sort of roll out. So don't be surprised when you see lots of three-week suspensions coming up. But Shiloh, just like Nepo, is the opportunity now to do the coaching intervention. Uh, I'm assuming that will go that will go well. The Crusaders coaching and a, a team and, and him are, are, are dedicated to it. Unfortunately, we lost Aaron. We had some technical difficulties, but we look forward to getting him back on the show again. And it was great to get some context 